bastard, you gotta pay a little price. If you want it bad enough, you gotta do a little extra things to get it. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodriguez, and with me as always, well, uh, I'm solo, but actually I'm not really alone because I've got you guys and your great questions. So guys, how are we doing? I am so grateful for all of the wonderful questions I got this week. We're going to do a mailbag. Um, I am flying solo. It's the Rams bye week. Got some some big news, you know, on the docket to to, to get to as well. Um, so I'm going to start with that. But um, wanted to say thanks for all the questions. And um, I know that there were a lot of angry fans uh, online, um, angry online, always the best way to be angry, um, after Sunday's game, 20-3 loss to the Green Bay Packers, a game that certainly would have been winnable with, uh, I believe, more competent quarterback play. Um, Brett Rippon really had a rough outing of it. Um, and today, this is Tuesday, November 7th. I'm recording, uh, for a second time, (laughs) um, kind of messed up the first one. I'm recording for a second time. Um, it's about one o'clock PM. The Rams have just waved Rippon. They waved dresser win. They waved defensive tackle Corey Durden. They also waved miles Gaskin in part, uh, financially and also roster spot wise to make room for, New free agent signing Carson Wentz, who is expected to back up quarterback Matthew Stafford. Um, Wentz, I would say at this point, it's pretty clear based on the the steps of this process, would be the Rams kind of fourth option here um, at quarterback. You know, they signed Stetson Bennett this offseason to um, become their long-term backup. Stetson has been on the non-football illness list since the start of the year. Going to get to that a little bit later. In the show, lots of questions still about that and some things that I want to make sure are clear. Um, And then they tried, uh, they signed Brett Rippon. He was with the team through training camp and then ended up taking the number two job when Matthew Stafford injured his right thumb in Dallas um, and sprained his UCL in that thumb last week. Um, On Monday, after that injury, the Rams tried and failed to sign John Walford, a previous backup of theirs. Um, they failed because John Walford um, was going to be activated to the Bucks 53-man roster, which means they could not sign him away at that point. They would have had to trade for him, which they weren't going to do. Um, and now, after Sunday's disaster, um, I, I would say that's one of the uglier games, um, especially on offense, that, I, that I've ever seen in my 10 years of, of covering the, the league and a couple years of covering college football. Get to that later on in the show as well. Um, you know, Rippon's been cut and now the Rams have picked up Carson Wentz, um, who has been a free agent, uh, well into the season here. So this is going to be interesting. You know, the, Sean McVay has expressed optimism that Matthew Stafford will return after the bye. Um, obviously that would be huge for the Rams if not just he could return, but also he could demonstrate functionality with that throwing hand, um, I will say that the optimism has been palpable. Um, It's been expressed not just from Sean McVay, but also from multiple people in the organization um, in terms of Matthew Stafford, you know, potentially being able to to return. And I think that that's good. That's a good sign. Cooper Cup was even a little more firm than he was optimistic in saying Matthew Stafford would return quicker than other people would even want him to, meaning, you know, if the medical staff is still on the fence, Matthew's still going to try to play, which we know this about him. He's done this multiple times 
in his career. Um, what I need to see definitively before I can make draw any sort of personal conclusion is I need to see the dude practice, which he has not practiced yet. And he could not grip a football into Friday, Saturday, which Brett Rippon um, was able to, to sort of clarify um, post game that the, he officially knew he would be starting Friday night when, when Matthew couldn't grip a football. So I need to see Matthew Stafford grip a football. I need to see him practice before I think anybody, including the team can definitively say, whether he'll be back or not. Again, it's not about pain or anything like that. It will be about specifically um, the grip on the football and the the functionality um, of that thumb and that hand. And so with now what will be three weeks to to rest that and then obviously probably taper up into a full workload into um, next week's practices, which start in full on Wednesday after the bye week, I think that um, that's something that obviously you're going to keep a close eye on. And if not, the Rams will have had uh, more time than the last veteran quarterback they acquired midseason, um, you know, which I guess is a, a silver lining um, to get uh, Carson Wentz. I almost said like six other names because they've had so many dang backup quarterbacks in here um, to get Carson Wentz sort of up to speed well enough to where he could, you know, competently run an offense. So I, I think that this is this is so I was going I was looking back on this and it was so um, telling of where the Rams are at with their backup quarterback situation. This is a le- I said on on um, X, the website formerly known as Twitter, um, that 11 months ago, almost to the day, the Rams picked Baker Mayfield up off of waivers after previously starting John Walford and Bryce Perkins in games in which Matthew Stafford was hurt. Now they intend to sign free agent Carson Wentz after Brett Rippon's start on Sunday. Oh my gosh, what a roller coaster. Like, what a journey. A thousand miles within, you know, 180 characters or however long that was. It's just wild. I think that, that you know, and I wrote a column about this two weeks ago. I would encourage you guys to go read it over at theathletic.com. You know, it, I don't. I'm not disparaging the the backups that they've had when I say this. I just think the Rams' process for solidifying their backup quarterback position is flawed. And, and I think they knew it was flawed coming into this year after what happened to them in 2022 when they went through Wolford and Perkins and ultimately signed Baker. And, and, and I think they knew that, and that's why they drafted Stetson Bennett, which – Ultimately, and again, not disparaging the young man, but ultimately also turned out to be a flawed process because he's not available to them as a backup, which was the reason why they wanted to draft a backup. And they went they went after him specifically. He was their guy pretty much the entire time, specifically within the parameters of the backup position. Um, and I think that this, again, reveals a flawed process because this is well, well into the season where, um, you know, and and one, I think, winnable game that they lost, that they're now signing yet another veteran backup to this roster. It's kind of, you know, um, it, 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 they're just doing the same thing over and over again. And, and I think part of what's going on here is a process that I think deserves some criticism, even though it is a process that I don't think, and Mike LaFleur said this pretty well last week, you know, nobody really has like the magic solve um, in terms of how to handle the backup position because you don't operate a roster or a team with the assumption that the starter is going to get hurt. But I think you should do so with some logic 
right? Because Matthew Stafford has not had a single season in LA in which he there has not been injury concern. Now the Super Bowl season, he made it through that whole year and and played really well in the playoffs as well, by the way. But there still was an injury concern about his elbow, which ended up being a huge concern, uh, more so than the team let on at the time, into the summer and into the fall as well. And then obviously the spinal cord contusion and the concussion protocol and, and all of that was, was, ter- was terrible for him and you really felt for him. But then coming into this year, I don't know how you could reasonably operate with the full assumption that... Matthew Stafford was going to make it through a 17 game plus potentially based on their hopes and their expectations that they've publicized, you know, for months now that they'd be better than expected, even though their roster sort of indicated otherwise 17 game season. And, and even if, you know, and you sort of saw the, the, the logic applied by, by some in the organization where they went out and drafted a backup quarterback. So then, okay, they're saying, okay, well, we're not actually sure that the quarterback is going to necessarily be healthy through the full season because um, there's data that shows us to prepare for the unexpected. And yet that process ultimately ended up being, um, they, they had some, unex- again, another, um, you know, the situation with, with Stetson, while fully aware of, of all of the variables going into his evaluation, um, still had a situation come up with him where he, he's not available to them. And so it's like, I almost think that there was, um, they've, they've had a, a, they have not, they've fiscally approached the position where it has to be extremely cost effective for that effective for them. There's also like specific, like category points, which the quarterback apparently needs to fall into. This is just based on every, all of the data we've collected about the guys that they've kept um, in which, you know, we know he's got to be able to functionally run a scout team. We know that um, because they run, they try to run a competitive, as competitive as possible of a scout team. Um, we know that he has to be a specific, um, you know, be, be able to be in the room as someone who can, can help um, the coaching staff achieve certain checkpoints through the week, which is what John Walford illustrated in his op-eds that he wrote for us last year at theathletic.com. Um, We know that um, Sean McVay really, it's very clear based on his own comments, really, really prefers to bring somebody in who has a familiarity with the language of the offense. That's how they got to Brett Rippon in the first place. Um, That's also why they went out and tried to sign John Walford and also, um, you know, ended up sticking with Brett Rippon even when um, Stetson was not available to them. But, But they went so long into the season without knowing really what the outcome would be in a in a maybe a worst case scenario which would be the, the starter is not available and it, it went as about as poorly as it could have and now they're sort of soft resetting midseason um and it's just it, it almost feels a sense of this team has had i think a process that it's right to be critical of when um determining this position but they've kind of been rewarded for flawed process because Baker Mayfield came in and that was fun. I mean, he won that first game and wasn't it wasn't a disaster. Like he kind of brought back some energy. He brought back some competitiveness. They won a couple games at the end of the year. They put up a bunch of points in, against Denver. 
They beat the Raiders. You know, it wasn't perfect. The games that were bad were pretty bad. Um, but they got young got young playmakers involved. They figured out some things about Tutu Atwell that they had yet to figure out at that time about their run game, about the play action, all of these things. It ended up being good. Like, it ended up being a really good thing that they brought Baker Mayfield back. And he wanted to be a starter. And, and like, you you give that to him. Like, that's that's fair. He wanted to be a starter. And and so he he goes out and he gets a contract. And that's great for him. And, and he's doing his best down there in Tampa. But, like, it's almost like there was a reward for what has been a, a wildly inconsistent um, process. And you don't fault the the players who were thrown into the situation. You don't really fault the – it's kind of like um, it, it's – you have to look at the system and the process of it versus the results, but it almost seems like the results of Mayfield are almost rewarding in part this this process that has seemed to be um, just – just really at best inconsistent over the last couple of years. And it's something that if you are going to have a quarterback who is, you know, over 30 and has a massive injury history and, and Stafford has played through some shit guys, this is not a critique of him as a player, but if you're going to have a quarterback who's past his thirties and who has played through the stuff that he's played through. And also in your own building, you don't even have data that shows that there won't be a concern at some point during the season. Um, you have to figure out something better, um, a better process about with your backup quarterback situation. Uh, you don't need somebody who's going to go and, and throw for a million yards and be lights out. You don't need that. You just need like stability is the floor here. It's the baseline. Anything after that is gravy, right? And so I think that that's where this, it's right and fair, I think, to be critical while also understanding like, yes, it is also a smart thing to want to be cost efficient and cost effective at this position. But it's almost like you're going to have to compromise on some of your other categories here because it's leading to players who should not be on the field for you. And then a, a process that is like this to multiple years in a row that, that looks like this. And Carson could come in and uh, be totally fine taking a back seat and could be totally, you know, fine going through all of that. Um, at the same time, um, to get to this point, it shows, um, it's just, I don't, it does not, it does not shine a glowing light on the organization as a whole is, is kind of what I would say on that. Um, and, and also I think that it's, they, they seem to be of the impression that Stafford will come back after the buy, but okay, then, then what, you know, then, then have a plan. What's the plan after that? You know, I asked Sean McVay, a couple weeks ago, uh, at, last week, actually, when they were, um, they tried and failed to sign John Walford. And I said, I asked him and I'm paraphrasing a question was, was like, okay, you've had all of these unexpected, like what you are saying is unexpected. Even, you know, the, the Bennett thing has been characterized in some parts as, as unexpected. And like, because they were aware of all of the, of, of, they did, they did full, a full eval and, and research on him as a prospect, like they did with any prospect they wanted to draft. And so it's still being framed as, as sort of an unexpected thing. And so when all of that happens and injuries are obviously unexpected, you could be logical about it, but you don't know when or how or what it will be. And he, and I like, have you, have you, what are you guys learning about, you know, the process of, of ascertaining who your backup's going to be. And, and he basically um, said a lot of things, but at the end, his, his final statement was the most important in my mind. And, and he sort of paused before he said it. And he just said, 
ultimately, you know, he said as an organization, we have to be better. And I agree. I think that's that's a really true statement. Um, you know, it, it's it's wild to be spending this much oxygen talking about the backup quarterback position. But again, if your starter has had this history, um, and again, it it also makes it even worse coming up on like winnable games. I think that also makes it worse in the minds of the fan base. Fairly so, I think, because I would have characterized that Packers game as a, as a winnable game, not not with above average quarterback play, but with competent quarterback play. Um, and and keep in mind too, they were also missing Rob Havenstein, a right tackle, also missing Kyron Williams and Ronnie Rivers. They're running backs number one and number two. Both of those players are expected to be back uh, after the bye week. Kyron will be a week longer because um, he has to follow the injured reserve designation rules. So that's four games, not four weeks. So he'll be back. I believe that's, uh, let's see, math is hard, week 12. Um, And then also Ernest Jones, the inside linebacker on the other side of the ball, he's expected to be back. So, um, you know, players that they've been missing who make a significant impact, Bobby Brown is expected to be back after the bye starting players who have made a significant impact on their on their team um who have had significant roles on their team they are expected to be back so it's almost like man you know if if they just had that one little detail just like a couple notches better than what it was that game um i think was winnable and i so i understand the angst and the frustration on that point um i'm also impressed with this fan base because this this is this was a hard game to watch. I, I will say that um, as objectively as possible. And also, I understand it, if you're a fan of this team, it was even harder to watch because you kind of just saw everything on the offensive side, especially completely deteriorate. Um, defense played most of the game, played pretty well, took the ball away twice, no points on the other side, got started in some pretty crappy field position because of some some special teams gaffes. Um, and then also though at the end, you know, gave up a couple of huge gash plays um, that the the final touchdown drive from the Packers um, made the Packers look like the old Packers basically in that in that final drive. And and so, you know, that's obviously a problem. But overall, the defense held up sort of its end of the bargain, you know, 20 points or less. And then and then um, on drives where they um, on on drives that weren't touchdown drives, they got off the field pretty quickly um, but, but the Rams offense was a disaster. I mean, it completely deteriorated. So in light of all of that, I'm really proud of this fan base because the four, four first downs in the second half, I just want to, that's all that's now I'll, I'll let it go at this point, but I'm impressed by the fan base because on Monday, and I sort of did this while holding my phone, like a, an active bomb. Um, I, shared out a request that I get some questions from you guys. Um, it's the midway point. It's the bye week. I'm flying solo. Apologies in advance if this podcast is so awkward. I hate the sound of my own voice, as you guys know. And um, I, it's just, this is like nails on a chalkboard for me doing this without a co-host. However, um, I did want to make sure that we got an episode over to you guys. And, and you guys really stepped up because... I got some outstanding questions, some outstanding questions from you. I got like, I think over 200 questions, whether it was email or on uh, X, the social media site formerly known as Twitter, 
um, or threads or a couple of Instagram DMs. I got, I th- it's pretty close to 200 questions. I'm going to try to get to several of them. A lot of them sort of would fall into the same categories or themes. So if I don't answer yours specifically, it means I obviously hate you. No, I'm just kidding. It means that I'm just sort of packing a bunch of them together in different buckets. Um, and then also I will be available after this posts um, later this afternoon to try to follow up on anything that might need a follow up. And then I'm going to try to take the rest of the week and be off the social media site, formerly known as Twitter, um, because uh, my brain is about to break in half. And I just, I, yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, but you guys did great. You guys were awesome. Um, I'm going to uh, get to right, right off the bat, I'm going to go with one of my favorite questions that I got. It's from James Staley um, at August Staley. He wants to know, McVeigh seemed more conservative yesterday, which mostly made sense given the circumstances. He's, uh, he asked this on Monday, so he's referring to, obviously, Sunday. In that vein, do you see him as a coach that sometimes asks too much of players, or does he err in protecting them, skill set-wise, too much? So I love this question because there's a lot of nuance in it. It's a multiple things are true at the same time question, which we know on this show. Um, I am I love that phrase. Um, someone put it on a T-shirt. Shout out to our friends abroad. Um, that was really cool. That made my week. Um, so, okay, I think it, it's interesting. The guys, my friends over at the Around the NFL podcast, um, Mark, Dan, and Greg, they also um, – broke this down in a way that I thought was like really succinct. So I'm sort of going to borrow their phrasing because what, what they did was a run, run pass plan with Ripien. Now it's not necessarily going to always be run, run pass every single series, but it was a run, run pass plan, which is a uh, sort of a slang describer of a hide the quarterback plan. Um, If you go run, run pass that obviously, or if you, you have a plan that looks like that, um, you're clearly trying to hide the quarterback. Sean McVay even like was was um, uh, verbally trying to hide the quarterback all week with the gymnastics that he went through, um, trying to at least leave the door open for the possibility that Matthew Stafford would play. Um, he did, you know, he did kind of get Matt Lafleur a little bit because Lafleur, um, they they prepared a game plan like they would be going against Matthew Stafford, and it ended up just like destroying Brett Rippon, which I guess it's like you know, a, you know, two for the price of one kind of a thing. But um, yeah, it was a hide the quarterback plan. And so I think like on the one hand, I get why they did that. I think the elements did genuinely have something to do with the plan itself. Now, Brett Rippon said that they weren't, the weather was not a factor. It was sleeting a little bit there um, sporadically too. Um, but Rippon said that the weather for him was not a factor once he got the studded cleats on. And then also once he got got a glove on. So at that point, um, you can't really use that as the the reason to stick to um, perhaps what I think was sometimes like a little bit, yes, a little bit more conservative, but like inconsistently so, right? So like on the one hand, they were doing things like run, run, pass. They were doing things like um, a lot of their, uh, they, they got, they did things like they got Demarcus Robinson on the field, which Frankly, I think they should do more of. I mean, I think he's a really good player. Um, but Brett Rippon, he's the player that Brett Rippon has the most reps with um, throughout the, the the work of the entire year. And so I, I get why they were doing that. Um, but it, it, then it also was like, um, 
you know, you're going to call the the third and one sweep with Ben Skoranek, but the blocking's not quite there. And and it's a sweep with Ben Skoranek. And so it's going to fail. And it was on short yardage. And and then things like Brett Rippon would sometimes run these keepers. And that those were some of the most positive yardage he would actually pick up was when he was out of structure and and it wasn't a design play, but he was running those keepers. So it's like, oh yeah, you should do more of that, right? But, but, but you know, you're not switching to that or you're not adjusting to that mid-game and you're keeping it in, in the parameters of that protect the quarterback plan. Um, and so I think that that, I think that that's fair if you have a quarterback who you made it obvious that you weren't confident in him starting the second you tried to sign John Walford, by the way. So like I can understand why they wanted to go a little bit more conservative with that plan. Um, at the same time, you – and yes, I think I agree with the, the whole thing of like maybe they didn't set him up for success sometimes because, again, like some of those keepers could have probably been more productive if you lean into that a little bit more. But then also, um, you know, he was at, he was in the gun a lot. The, after, right after he fumbled, he was in the gun a lot. And um, including on a, like a, a, a short yardage run, it was like a fourth and two – and it was on the other side of this long ass quarter break where they had all the time in the world to discuss the plan on the side, the play on the sideline. And they still ran it out of 11 personnel, not heavy, not a heavy personnel, a short yardage run out of shotgun um, on fourth and two out of 11 personnel. I mean, I just, it's just, it was inconsistent in that regard. And so it's kind of like um, this question is interesting because we know that that it's like it's it's hard for rookies to play on this team, um, specifically mostly on offense. It's really hard for rookies to crack this roster. It is complicated. There's a lot of steps that go into building up to the point where you can successfully contribute on this roster. But also, um, which which in that in that part of the question, James's question, yes, it, that is asking a lot of a rookie to have that much of an understanding of the offense, um, of his offense, um, that kind of naturally prevents them from getting on the field sometimes. But also, and and you could say that that's also, I guess, protecting them in a way because you don't want to ruin a guy's habits or confidence um, in in that regard. But but there's not, there are some things where then it's like, well, then, you know, by necessity, sometimes you're asking a lot of your rookies. In this case, Puka Nakua, who showed he could step up to the mark. I just don't know that. I think there are a lot of times he's waiting for necessity to strike before he's asking whether players can meet the moment. Because you're seeing a lot of the same guys deployed in 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 the sort of the the safety valve ways um, of when this offense is a little bit skewed or off the rails, you start to see some of the same things that are, are, um, kind of like the safety, the safety net plays. Um, you see them emerge a little bit and, and instead of, um, kind of just going towards something totally new or bringing in somebody totally new, I think that's a pattern here. Um, but then when necessity strikes, you've seen them have success sometimes. When when a player is set up with a structure around him to help him be successful, um, like Puka Nakua was, and thrived in that. 
And then on the other hand, though, you see a situation like Zach Thomas, who was not set up for success um, because he had no chipping help at left tackle. And um, that was a disaster. And then, you know, it's just it's such a um, I think it's so difficult to try to figure out when to ask players to meet the moment when they're young, when you also have players in front of them who are not just established in the in the um, in the league but in the, and on your team, but like in the language of how things work, in the in the language of how things are supposed to go when it's moving really really fast. Like remember, they don't have you know time to you know have a you know an incubator <laughs> between every play. So when things are moving that fast, I can understand you're going to depend a little bit more on Tyler Higby um, because he knows what to do in every situation and scenario. But it's not always the right decision to depend on Tyler Higby if he cannot move one of his arms and if then he bangs up another ha- his other hand, um it is maybe not the best decision then to lean on that player. Maybe that's when it's time to ask a, a young player to rise to meet the moment. I remember Bryson Hopkins in the Super Bowl, you know, Kendall Blanton in the playoffs. Um, Puka Nakua for the entire first part of this year when Cooper Cup was on injured reserve. Um, Tutu Atwell when they needed him with Baker Mayfield. I, I think about those examples and I, I have to think there's enough good examples of asking, yes, asking a lot of players um, and asking, asking them to meet the moment and then um, also lifting the structure around them to also help them succeed. Um, I think that that's, that's going to be a big lesson from this year. I've, I've deviated from your original question, James, but, um, it is like, you know, the best example of your question from Sunday was yes, they were definitely clearly trying to hide Brett Rippon, um, in terms of the scheme that they ran and that they deployed, um, when, when that clearly was not working, I would have liked to see them just try other stuff. (laughs) Um, But I also understand that um, if you feel like you've got a good plan and all it will take is a little bit better of execution, it's hard to know when to just deviate from that original plan. Um, However, I do think that there were some some flashes that I can say from someone who was watching from an all-22 lens, not someone who is literally running a team and everything's moving so fast and it's happening so fast, um, I can say that a little bit easier than I think you can in the moment if you're the one calling the plays or or doing the thing. So um, hopefully that answered your question. I took a long time answering that because I thought it was a really good question. So I'm going to try to rip through a couple of these other ones. Um, Okay, from Scoot. What do you think it is specifically that is making the Rams struggle to find their identity on offense? So I think it's some of what we just talked I just talked about above, but also I think that like, okay, so if you look at who's been available in what weeks, there's been an inconsistency in what you're able to actually deploy within the ultimate, the initial vision, because, you know, first four weeks you're missing Cooper cup. Okay. You add him back in and it's supposed to be great, but then all of a sudden now you stop, you, you're missing your, your running backs, um, outside of, you know, one and a half, two games and then you're starting over with your run game with two players, one who, yes, you have familiarity with, but you're running a new scheme. So it's new for everybody, including for Daryl Henderson, by the way. And so 
Um, I think people forget that is like they're not running the same scheme that they ran last year. Some of the language is the same, but they wanted to switch to a gap identity this year, and they did. And then their running backs, now they're missing their running backs, so now it's 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 just difficult. Um, okay, and then you get Cooper Cup back in, but then now teams that are – you're playing some teams that are very capable – of covering Cooper in a way that maybe some of the other teams at the beginning of the year were not capable of covering Puka. And then, so now you're trying to figure that out. Now you're, you got both of them on the field at the same time and you're trying to figure that out. And you also have some clear timing issues between Matthew Stafford and Cooper cup at that point, um, which by the way, um, pregame was super interesting. A Packers and uh, a person who works for the Packers and like is, is a significant you know, person in their organization um, had watched uh, a couple of the games on tape previously and, and mentioned to me that also even on the outside, it, you know, from from the, the opponent perspective, it looks like um, Stafford and Cup, their timing has been a little bit off. Um, obviously, you hope that they fix that when, when he comes back. And you understand it's been, you know, he didn't have training camp with this offense. Cooper didn't. Um, and even though he's Cooper Cup and it's Cooper and Matthew – um, you're still going to struggle a little bit with some of that timing stuff, specifically when you played, you know, four weeks in a totally different way with a different player, with the timing of a different first read. Um, it's just different. So um, trying, they're trying to figure that out. And and then I think you, then you start seeing now teams are adjusting to Puka and and Puka is like banged up and 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 I think probably exhausted. I mean, I would be too. And the bye week came at a good time. And then you also have this thing where it's like a bunch of young players who are in key roles on the offense. And then you have a a few veteran players also in key roles. And there's got to be like a middle ground, right? Because the veteran players are used to the absolutely highest level of operation. And that's great. The young players have a lot of potential, but they are not used to the same level of operation that the veteran players are because they've not done it before. And so now you're trying to cross into that middle ground of, again, kind of like what the first question was. It's like, okay, how much do you do right now, understanding you have veteran players who are able to execute it, but it's going to take a minute for these young players to learn how to execute it on a consistent, regular basis. Um, So I think that's a a part of it. Um, You know, I had an understanding of what the vision would be on offense coming in. Um, and I, I bought it. I think that, um, the calling the play calls at times have deviated from that expressed vision. I'm specifically talking about the run game. Um, I, I really buy into what they at least were trying, are trying to do with this run game. I think it is exactly meets the league in the moment it's at right now and, and has to happen. Um, at the same time in, in, uh, you know, some of the games and when Stafford was healthy, I'm talking about some of those games and when Kyron was held, some of those games that the calls were a little inconsistent. I think that you're also looking at a head coach who is rediscovering who he wants to be as a play caller. So it's a lot of things that are true at the same time. Um, That's just kind of my perspective in answering that question. Um, Okay. So Jonathan Hoffman asked me another one of my favorite questions um, Regarding your insidious observation from the column, thank you for reading The Athletic, is it fair to say that other teams' game plan is to make McVay's offense navigate chaos by doing their opposite? And if so, is this because the Rams' game prep is too tendency-based during the week? So I like this question because it gives me another opportunity to say like multiple things are true at the same time. So for those who didn't read the column, please go read it. But if you didn't, that's that's fine. We forgive you. Um, 
So Cooper, the last couple of weeks I've been chasing this thread from Matthew Stafford and from Cooper Cup, who have both alluded to and then have now spoken more specifically on um, defenses are, are tendency breaking against the Rams. What I mean by that is the Rams will see things and study things like every team in the league does this, by the way. Um, study the opponent's tendencies, understand their rules, quote unquote, on defense. So the rules by which they deploy their defense, which means how they react to any play, um, what their rules are for man and zone, what their rules are for pressure, like how they react to things and how they deploy things. And then um, to um, to form a game plan that they that tries to exploit those tendencies and tries to exploit those rules. Now, you also, in that, you do have a variety of options when you're designing your offensive game plan for a variety of scenarios that the defense presents you. So it's not just like they're coming in blind to when teams are tendency breaking. There are um, plan B, plan Cs that you can potentially get to. The thing that is insidious to me is that they're seeing it at a higher level than ever. So they're seeing a higher frequency of teams tendency breaking against them, which means that the things that they are, the, the rules that they understand about the defenses that they'll play, the defenses are now kind of doing a week only game plan against the Rams and saying, okay, we're not going to do in, in some situational. So like probably key situations like third down, we're not going to do the thing. We're not going to align in the way that our rules would normally dictate we align. Instead, we're going to align in a way to try to um, mess up Matthew Stafford or mess up Sean McVay or mess up Cooper Cup. And one the thing the Packers did that Brett Rippon talked about post-game was the Packers are like, this is an example of it, the Packers are like a man and a match team on third down in known passing situations. That's their rule on their defense, right? Well, they did not do that. Um, they showed it post or pre-snap um, but Rippon was saying that they uh, sunk back a lot of times into like a Tampa 2, sort of cloudy Tampa 2 look um, um, on those known passing downs. And again, the Rams are going run, run, pass. <laughs> so it's like, hey, this seems straightforward. Um, so they were sort of sinking in, in that regard. And so they were breaking their tendency. They were doing something that they had not previously put on film. Matthew Stafford brought this up. The Cardinals were doing this like walk around defense where they were sort of like just you know, just like mulling about <laughs> um, before the snap. And then all of a sudden they'd line up with what they were going to do. And then they'd shift again. And so so that was like f uh, fun for, for Stafford or like funny in hindsight. You know, if they lost, it wouldn't have been funny. But it was like funny in hindsight because Matthew was like, you know, I've seen it all, but I hadn't really seen that before. And but but that's when he started talking about how teams are tendency breaking. So this is what I think it is. It's like they're trying to mess up Matthew. They're trying to mess up Cooper. There's enough tape of those two playing together to understand that they're going to know your rules. They're going to understand how to break your defensive rules. So you might as well not play by your rules, right? You might as well try something different. And it's also true that defenses can do more than ever now, especially um, from defenses with either a range either or between a lot of young players because you're just trying stuff and you're trying to make communication really simple. So you're probably not playing by your full tendencies in the first place or really experienced defenses like, like green Bay in most phases where you are able to shape shift depending if it's this, if it's a, a key op opponent, 
Um, or like in the in the Packers case, you really need a win or you might be going up against a backup. Like you can shape shift. You sort of um, like throw everything you can at that that week in shape shifting. This was what Bill Belichick did against Sean McVay going into the Super Bowl. He broke all of his tendencies and he basically installed Vic Fangio's defense um, in order to beat McVay because that's what had been put on tape earlier in the season. So what you saw in 2019 was a lot of other teams tendency breaking, so deviating from what they normally do on defense in order to align in, in like, for example, a 6-1 front against Sean McVay and Jared Goff because it worked, because it was stressing the offense in a way that the offense was not previously stressed, right? So this is what you're seeing happen in real time because of the caliber of the coach, because of the caliber of the quarterback, because of the caliber of the the number one receiver. That is what you're seeing these teams do. So basically, you're you're also seeing that um, I think on the other, it's like shades of 19 in that you've seen Sean McVay re-navigate and like uh, troubleshoot through something like this in the past. Um, They sort of figured out their issues with um, those six one fronts by the end of that season, um, mid during the season, so like adjusting on the fly in in some of the twelve personnel stuff that they were running, um, and then he went out in twenty and he hired Brandon Staley in order to figure out what those defensive tendencies were, um, and then in doing so understood that because of the way the game was changing, and in part because of what his own offense had done to the game uh, and to the sport. <laughs> Um, defenses were becoming, they have a wider menu than ever. So like more teams, you don't have to be coached by Bill Belichick, um, circa 20, you know, 2018 to, to be able to shape shift. If you have players who are capable of, of doing multiple things, if you listen to play callers, this, this change we've seen in more versatile players, really smart players who are understanding how to, um, kind of reset some of those reverse, some of those leverages. Um, that we were seeing, um, you know, offenses enjoy mathematically for for such a long time, and particularly by Sean McVay's teams in in twenty um, in, in twenty seventeen, and and so that's part of it. You're seeing like a big change in um, in in that across the league, not just here against Sean McVay. Um, when I said it was insidious in the column, what I mean is it's not just that Sean is going to have to figure out how to adjust on the fly and continue to evolve. It's also that there are play the players have to do that too. If the defense is showing something pre-snap but then moving into something else post-snap in a way that breaks their tendency, that the players are going to ha- the players have to problem solve that. That's Matthew Stafford, that's Cooper Cup, but that's also a lot of young players who are just going to have to get used to that and understand what that problem solving in real time is. So it's like it's 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 multiple things. It's the players and the coach and also probably exploiting the fact that they're in a bit of a a transition between some of the young players and some of the older players on their roster. So teams are are doing this because they understand it is an, it is it is an advantage to try against a, a team with a receiver, a quarterback, a coach of of this caliber. But but defenses across the league are doing things like this. They're 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 shape shifting. There's more available to them in terms of the menu with which they can they can deploy things. Um, scoring, this is, a uh, um, Graham Barfield, uh, my, my guy goes, goes way back. We go way back to, uh, the, um, will the Panthers draft Christian McCaffrey and here's why they should days back in, uh, back in the old days. So, um, 
Scoring is 11% below the six-year average. This is also the fewest touchdowns scored league-wide since the 2017 season, 580 touchdowns weeks one through nine. So this is it's interesting because you're not just seeing this with the Rams, you're seeing it league-wide. The, the league is shifting again. And the thing is, is I think what you're what you're seeing and why it's insidious is because it's it's a yet again, it's not happening in an offseason the way the last two years have kind of gone with the league. It's it's happening in season. And so it's creeping into what the Rams are trying to do. And so what the Rams have to do is now figure out not just how to adjust schematically, but also to kind of like what I said right at the beginning, how to better prepare for the unexpected. And that takes a collective and combined effort between the coaches in their teaching and their preparing players for the unexpected, those tendency breakers. And also it takes the players themselves um, understanding and deploying those different, uh, you know, scenarios if, if the unexpected does occur. So I love that question. Um, thank you for, for asking that question. Um, okay. Steven Slack says, it seems like we all knew this season was likely to be a stepping stone for the next couple of seasons. What can we do as fans when watching the game to help us watch more analytically? What are areas to pay attention to better gauge what things are working or not working? I love this question. You know, I'm not going to tell you guys like what to read or what to study, but um, I really, what I think really helps, <laughs> honestly, in, in understanding what, if you're a fan, like it, what really helps in understanding what your team is going through is to watch the league overall. So, um, you know, I am... I think privileged in the fact that I'm in a Slack channel which, with a bunch of coworkers who have a totally different perspective on what the, what's happening with the Rams right now than what the fan base has in, in terms of or many in the fan base. I don't want to generalize and say the majority. Like, um, I think that it's it, if you take a step back and look at um, some of the other offenses in the league or some of the other uh, situations occurring, I think watching trends like the people on the outside, like people in my, my company Slack channel are like, man, the Rams must be fun to cover this year because they're better than people expected. This was, again, this was before Sunday. This was like when Stafford was healthy. Go like, oh, is better than, they're better than expected. Wow. Meanwhile, it's like, you know, I think fair, and I think fairly, we're all in here being like, why aren't you going for it more on fourth down when your kicker can't make a 53-yard field goal? Like, why, you know, why this, why that? And I think that's also fair, by the way. I'm I'm the leader on that charge, so I think that's also fair. But I think stepping back and like taking a bigger picture view of the lens maybe of the of the um of the league really helps. I also am not saying this sarcastically at all. I think that reading our draft content, um, Dane Brugler leads the charge on that with Deontay Lee. Um, Nate Tice does some of that. Um, and, uh, Nick, uh, Nick Baumgartner and Chris Berkey, like they, they do some of that stuff. Um, I think that will, I think help in terms of perspective of, um, of that. And I think like keeping what I think will, will help is this is the way that coaches are watching this team right now. The Rams coaches, Rich, Rich and I touched on this last week in 11 personnel. It's not so much that the Rams are looking at and evaluating their roster in terms of um, like success, meaning wins and losses. What they're doing is figuring out who's going to stay and who's not going to be here anymore. Um, 
they're figuring out what holes they have already filled via this draft class or a couple of the veterans in free agency or what, and where they still need to plug in holes based on the performance of players at those positions. So I think watching the game in that perspective, like, I don't want to, I'm not saying this in a, in a disparaging way at all, but I think the situation with Darion Kendrick and the, and the secondary and also with um, like with Quentin Lake and Kobe Durant, I think that this is a really good example of this, right? Because you're basically saying, okay, so so as you guys know, so Kobe Durant started in place of Darion Kendrick last week. He started on the outside. He'd been previously playing on the inside. Well, I would I would probably argue that outside corner seems to be a little bit stronger of a position for Kobe. But then the question was, okay, who are you going to develop to play at the star? Because Kobe was training to play at the star corner position, a very important position in any in any functional off- uh, defense this this at this point in the league because teams are in um, 11 personnel and 12 personnel so much. Um, you need to have a player in the slot, you know, all that. You guys know this. Um, but it could be arguable that Kobe was their that is that Kobe is their second best outside corner currently right now. Trey Tomlinson's still a little bit of an unknown. He's developing. Okay. So you could also make that argument. So it's basically like, okay, if you move Kobe, you also have to figure out a way. You also have to figure out who's going to play in the slot. Well, you can't do that unless you know who is not going to maybe factor in an outside corner. So Darion Kendrick could in the future, but right now it is not factoring in at outside corner based on the last couple of weeks. Kobe Durant, injury aside, you know, he took he took his place, right? So then you you're like, okay, so you're adjusting to play Quentin Lake more in the slot star, which I think he's thriving in that role, frankly. And um and it's working. So that's kind of what I would say fans should be watching is like how they're moving guys around and trying to figure out um you know, who is, it, it's not so much about like, okay, what are this guy's stats this week? It's more so about, um, is this person, is this guy, is this player potentially in the long-term plans of a starting or a key role at this position? And that's very much what they're figuring out on, on many, on, on a lot of sides of the ball. And you also see like, if, if player A clearly has this role, what else now, what other holes clearly need to be filled? And I use the example now of, okay, Byron Young clearly is going to be a dude for this team, but it also sort of shines a little bit more of a light on the fact that they don't have consistent play on the other side of him. So it's not to disparage a player or to, um, to be sort of like, you know, they failed or whatever. It's not that at all. It's more so, okay, so that's somewhere you need to fill. It sort of is like, this is working here, so where else is there a hole? Because everything is so interconnected. Um, so I would say that's a good question, Stephen. Hopefully that helped answer your question. Um, and I think that gathered a little bit more of the uh, uh, Tomlinson questions as well, hopefully. Um, okay, Rams Talk wants to know, I, l- I like this question too because I'm meaning to talk about this. Are the Rams deploying Higby differently this year than years past? His production in the passing game is down. I'm curious if that's due to more blocking assignments, injuries, drops, or all three. Also, how does his contract extension affect Allen and Long's future? Okay, so yes, they are deploying him differently, but not so much in the passing game as as in the uh, as in the run game. 
So what they're doing with their run blocking, especially when they're able to be in their gap stuff, is um, they're using like, and, and the best way I can describe this, it's not like scientifically accurate. Um, so fan uh, scheme scheme people, um, you know, please just, I'm painting a picture here. Don't yell at me. It's basically like using motion rules to get him moving along the formation to where he could look like he's going to block on the backside of a, of a run the way that he always had in the past. Instead, flipping him to using some of those pre-snap movement rules um, to get him on the front side of a play instead. And those can, in the past, those are called like sift blocks. Um, I call it a crash block because he literally has to crash down, like quite literally like crash down onto the front side of the play um, at a running start. And you, that's like, and even when he's not sift or crash blocking, he's still, there's a lot of rules that are moving him into the front side of a of a run block. It also helps disguise some of their duo runs which is um, something that they really have leaned on heavily when their running backs are healthy this year um, and actually was was quite effective when it was working again when everyone was healthy. Um, Tyler Higby is not healthy. Um, one of his arm, he does not have like full functionality in one of his arms. So that's where I think you, you have to make a decision as a coach um, in A, protect the player who you just paid, protect the player from himself in a year where you do also have to see what you've got in some of the other tight ends. Um, and, and, and then also, um, you, you are not necessarily deploying a player who's fully effective on the field and you're still involving him in the passing game. I think that's, uh, I think that's an error because if he has not a fully functional arm and then also banged up his other hand and you're throwing him the ball, I mean, it's just, to me, it just, the logic doesn't square. So that was something I asked Sean directly about post game. Um, he sort of made it sound like that was something kind of similar to the Zach Thomas thing, something that they're going to re- reassess. But um, a healthy Higby, I think, is a really, really valuable asset to them, especially in that blocking scheme with how versatile he is in the blocking scheme because they're doing so many different things now with him in, in, t- in terms of the blocking surface. Um, so I think that's important. But I think I, al- but I also think that. Bryson Hopkins has showed that he can be effective in the pass game. So maybe mix it up a little bit in there. Um, I don't know what to tell you about Hunter Long because I, I just haven't seen him play. Um, he he's he's built like a bigger Tyler Higby in terms of height and and um he he and Davis Allen seems like he's gonna be a really good player for this team. But I just I have to see it. It's kind of goes back to the initial question of like, at what point are you asking these young young kids? to try to meet the moment. Like when, when will you give them the shot to do that? And, and the variables, like, are they actually able within the structure that exists? Are they actually able to be supported in that ask? Um, Cause it's not just throwing the player off a cliff. It's also, Hey, you got to also help that player out too. This question is from, I think Monty um, is Puka still getting snaps in cups position. What's the split if they are, and double question, you snuck that in there. Um, do you think running back is addressed in the draft or free agency? I definitely think they're going to draft a running back. I think this is the plan for this team. As long as they can stay healthy, which they haven't really been healthy the last couple of years at the position, but if they can stay healthy, I think they're just going to keep drafting these guys year over year over year. I think they feel that the sweet spot of when to draft them is between the third and the fifth or sixth rounds. Um, and, and so I think that you're going to sort of see that strategy deployed. Um, as far as Puka goes, um, he is not in the Cooper cup role and he, and he wasn't either when he was, 
when Cooper was out. He's been in the Robert Woods role, and he's done a little bit of the the F stuff, which is also what Robert Woods was able to do. But he has been, you know, they're, they're still, I think it's very clear that they're still sort of working out how the two are on the field together at the same time. Um, but but um, Cups, Cooper's position, no, but what he was is when, especially against zone looks, which they were getting a crap load of at the early start of the season, against zone, Puka was Matthew's first read against zone, which again, they were getting a ton of, the majority of, the which every team plays majority zone. So like, but they were all getting a ton of zone. And um, he was always the first read in the zone against a zone look, right? So now Cooper's back in and Cooper is always the first read and has all the option routes in his repertoire. So first and foremost, getting the time in between those two back on track and then also continuing to solidify, okay, Puka is sort of in the Robert Woods role. So now, again, um, how does that kind of work and how what is that going to look like when things are actually clicking um, when Matthew Stafford is, um, is healthy again? Only Rams, nice pun there, says, way too early, but does Les go on a shopping spree this offseason in order to acquire an outside linebacker or cornerback? And does Witherspoon get an extension? Um, I think whether I think Akello is making a case for himself to get an extension, but keep in mind the Rams also um, they like these comp picks. Their their uh, entire strategy build strategy does not predicate around those anymore, but they do like the comp picks. So um, I, I would imagine he's somebody they'd like to keep. But if they can't, um, I would imagine they'd like for him to get a nice contract from another team so that they can kind of boost their comp pick. Um, outside linebacker and cornerback, I think both, especially a corner with length, I want to be very specific, a cornerback with length. Um, I think those are two positions that are, um, going to be priorities for them, whether it is in, in, uh, the free agency, whether it's via trade, whether it is in the draft. I do think that those are two, um, core positions. We always have known those to be the premier positions within this team build, so I think those are going to be um, two priority positions. Um, okay. Jordan Foote says, does the rest of 2023 potentially impact the aggressiveness of the front office during the offseason at all, i.e. stumbling down the stretch versus responding with a solid finish? He also says, hang in there. You're doing a great job again this season. Thank you so much, Jordan. Also great name. Um, okay. So, um, no, I don't think the rest of this season at all uh, affects the aggressiveness specifically of the front office. Things like injuries or um, other such variables could potentially, so like if someone has a, you know, knock on wood, hopefully this doesn't happen, but if someone has like a season-ending injury that's going to take into next year to heal, that could affect decision-making. But in terms of the aggressiveness, what does, the the, the win-loss record does not. Um, what does affect the aggressiveness of the front office in the next couple of off-seasons are the discipline of standing pat at the trade deadline, not making any moves financially, not kicking the can down the road financially, acquiring uh, and sort of amassing all of their dead cap in one place in one year to sort of wash it clean. Um, that That's the reason why they're going to be able to be aggressive, not so much the win-loss um, from here on out. And also thank you for the supportive words. 
Okay, uh, Caesar Charles Jr. says, is it possible we're going to go away from the two, I think you mean too high, too high shell, Fangio 3-4 defense? Other teams seem to have figure, us figured out already, or is it just that we need to have more pass rush for it to work? So they do need more pass rush. <laughs> I say that. That's like going to be a priority is they do need more pass rush. But also, um, this defense has evolved this year, and it will probably keep evolving. Um, so it, it still has those like core... Fangio elements of it. It's still a three, four, obviously. Um, and it still plays at times in his own shell, but, um, and I, and I understand you can't see this on the TV broadcast cause they often don't show the all 22 vision of it. But if you go back and you watch, they're actually playing a lot of like cloudy, like cover three stuff and rotating post snap. You'll see a lot of single high safety looks, um, you'll see actually like a lot of aggressive like match zone, which is the point of of this scheme post snap. But they're doing they're getting to it in different ways. Um, a lot of that is it clears up the communication on the field with young players, and they're also they're they're playing more aggressive in those concepts. When you're seeing these big breaks, which you are, you're, they they're not containing explosive plays nearly at the rate that they can or should be. So I that is a criticism. Um, but when you when you do look at this, um, you see that they are um, pushing a little bit. They're uh, pressing is I hate I don't like that word because it misconstrues. They're not in man, right? They're in a match um, post snap, but they're also doing this like a little bit more aggressive, a lot more aggressively than they did last year. And when you're seeing break big breaks, so like those big busts where you're like wide ass open receiver, what is going on? Um, then that's often because of a miscommunication error or because there was supposed to be help coming from a different place that was not there. Um, and that's, again, it's a young, young guys, young team. But in terms of the, the strategy here, it is very clearly um, in terms of the, the coverage concepts um, more aggressive than what it has been. Now, the last two weeks with um, Darion Kendrick, some of those issues, and then also Switching personnel in the defensive backfield, you've got to simplify some of the stuff. Duke Shelley has not been in this specific offense. He's been in a version of it, but not this. This is a different, different than what Donatel was running. So you're going to work him up to speed here, um, especially if he's in the slot. And then also you're switching personnel. So depending on whether Kobe is going to be able to go or not, like you may have to, you can, you can either play your true defense or you might have to adjust a little bit just depending on who's there. But a lot of times when you're seeing that like real wide open, nobody around them thing, it's not because they've uh, they've played. It's not because the safeties are just somewhere off the screen. It's because nobody can, there was a miscommunication or, or a little literal break. And then I know there are a couple of issues with a couple of plays that uh, where they should have been tightened down a little bit more um, on a, like a second and seven or like um, things like that. And And that to me is just getting better play calls there, and then also um, trusting your personnel to be able to cover a little bit more tightly there. Um, so I, this the, the thing about this defense is it does not stay the same. It, it's going to probably always be called the Fangio defense just because of how significant that impact was on the best offense in the league and one of the most productive offenses in NFL history at that time. It's probably going to be called that for a long time, but a lot of coaches who run it are now deviating and adjusting it and moving it away from um, some of the variable parts or like expanding the menu of it. Um, and and Vic is too. I mean, you saw um, the way that they covered Travis Kelsey this last week. 
was really smart. Um, you saw um, some of the things that they were uh, were able to do. Like it was, um, those were things that he too is continuing to, to, I don't even know if he'd call his defense the, um, you know, the original Fangio 3-4 um, because everything is changing and has to change. Um, I know that's probably not the answer that people were hoping for. Um, I definitely see your tweets, <laughs> um, but that's the answer that uh, it's the, it's the truth. So, um, okay. The clout King TM says, do you think assuming we draft in the top 10, we should prioritize a quarterback over other options? Um, I don't know because of the way that projections projections are now shaking out for the, the full, um, rest of the year in terms of the draft order, I don't necessarily know if you can expect the Rams to have a shot at the top two, potentially even the top three quarterbacks in this draft class because of the other teams that are, are bad right now that are, um, in need of a quarterback. Um, I think that the most important thing I think they should draft a quarterback. I, I think that not to um, Matthew Stafford's detriment at all. Um, I think he's got a, some good, great football left in him. Um, the health thing, the, cons- the, the like I mentioned at the start of this podcast, the health thing is a concern. And you also, um, the, the league is moving toward quarterbacks who can move better than Matthew Stafford can move. Now, he can make any throw. He can do so many uh, amazing things with his arm angles and uh, manipulate space in that way. But the league is also moving towards quarterbacks who um, are able to work out of structure, make things happen while on the move. Um, And I think that is a significant thing to consider if you're this franchise. It also changes your priorities at running back. It it sort of uh, is a salve for – like you don't necessarily need to have running back pass protection be the make or break factor when you're drafting a running back and playing them as a rookie. So it's like there's team build implications as well. Um, if you have a quarterback who can work out of structure and move, um, there's offensive line implications, there's financial implications of having a quarterback on a rookie contract. I mean, there's so many things that say, yes, this team should draft a quarterback, right? Um, not, not to say that that would mean it would be it for Matthew Stafford. I could definitely see this team, especially with the head coach's history with young players, with quarterbacks who are still growing, um, a lack of history of developing a quarterback from a rookie season. I think that you could definitely see a scenario in which Matthew Stafford, who with, um, the fire behind him of, Hey, there's a guy sitting in my room, who at some point is going to take over for me. Um, I think that that there's a competitiveness there naturally, not a, not a, uh, a maliciousness, but I do think there's a natural competitiveness there. I think that there is, um, a lot of benefits to truly, um, to bringing in somebody who could, um, develop or have the time to, uh, get a clean roster around him, have the time to develop in the system and then playing for this team down the road. I think there's so much beneficial to that. Um, that would probably be the strategy that I would be looking at if I ran a team or if I ran this team right now. However, I also think there are some really outstanding 
players that are expected to go in this top 10. And if you don't necessarily think you are going to draft a quarterback because you don't think you're going to get the guy that is your guy, it depends on who their guy is, right? If you don't think you're going to get him, and so you don't see yourself committing to um, anybody else in terms of this is like a at a minimum four-year and at maximum like a 15-year commitment, right? If you don't see yourself committing to anyone else, if you don't want to develop a rookie quarterback, if you don't want any of that stuff and you are going to trade for a quarterback instead, um, then at that point you look at these other positions in the draft class and you think, wow, there's some really talented linemen in this first round. There's some great uh, tight end hybrid receivers. There's some great receivers. Um, there's some corners, you know, those, those types of things I think that, that you look at. So it's a, it's a fluid and um, constantly shifting conversation, I think. Um, the key will be is um, whoever the prospect is, got to pick the right one, right? <laughs> um, okay. I, I got this question a few times. Um, I think it's part of it is inspired by um, – the the losses i think some of it's inspired by the uh some of the conservatism in the situational stuff i think some of it is inspired by the run game stuff um uh, but i also think that you know it is a question i've gotten i got a lot so I'll, i i don't think it would be fair to not include it um so broly says would mcveigh consider handing off play calling duties um no definitively no um however i will say i i do think that there's some nuance, multiple things are true to what is happening right now. And, and I've said this, I said this like kind of in a, I think in a comment at The Athletic the other day, I think what you're watching is the continued development of a head coach who is going through that development as a head coach versus historically you've gone through that development as an offensive coordinator as a, a lower tier assistant where you don't really notice it because um, the head coach is sort of taking this, taking the heat or the head coach is sort of masking some of the learning and some of the on the fly lessons that are happening. Um, do I think that this team could certainly um, fix some things in that phase in terms of not letting your foot off the gas um, when too early in a game, whether it is some of the win probability stuff that they're leaving off the table that I have covered in depth at the athletic, uh, several weeks ago, whether it is, um, you know, just some of the, uh, some of the freedom, the adjustments, the looseness, um, some of the, the things to try. I, I do think that there's a way to, to just like be a little looser with, with it. Now this again, like caveat, like this is, probably one of the harder jobs in football. It's, it's extremely difficult. I am not someone who does it. I've never done it. So, um, if, if you, uh, don't value the opinion of someone who's never done it, that's totally fine. I completely understand. That's just my perspective. Um, I could definitively say that, no, he won't consider that, but also, um, I get why he wouldn't. I think he's, um, still among one of the league's best coaches and play callers. I just think he's going through, um, some development, some growing, some evolving. I think that he's rediscovering how to coach or not how to coach, but like rediscovering like what he really um, values in coaching. Along with that, you know, the energy devoted to that, you're also rediscovering what do I have to work with? How can I work with that? What do I really understand about this roster? What are the depth? What are the limitations of this current roster? And how can I put pieces in place that um, let my veterans be veterans, but also um, 
ask my rookies to uh, maybe do some things that, uh, especially if they're in must contribute positions, not uh, make them out of their element in terms of um, finding that balance, that middle ground. So I, I think that's difficult. So um, that's, that's, I don't know if that's the answer people wanted, but that's, that's what I think. Um, again, that's my opinion <laughs> and, uh, I totally get it too. If it's not valid to, to some, um, because I myself, uh, have not been in that chair ever. Um, I just try to understand it the best that I can. And I try to understand, uh, where people in those positions are, are coming from and what they're navigating, um, as they continue to develop. So. Spencer says, has all of the turnover on McVay's offensive coaching staff finally caught up with him? Um, I like this question because I wanted to actually attach it to the earlier question um, about the tendency breaking. I think this is part of it, too, is um, other coaches understand how Sean McVay runs his offense because they've literally been in his building. So I think that that's something that this staff and, and he as a head coach, I think it's it's admirable that he's not wanted to hold anyone back per se. Um, at the same time, like you got to stop people from leaving your building. <laughs> like that's my opinion. Like you just stop letting people out the door. You're running out of people. <laughs> like you're running out of people who, who, um, specifically fit in all your little categories for the type of person who you want to work with, right? Like you're running out of those people and you're also running out of people who don't know how your building works across the league. So you gotta, gotta hit pause on that. It's sort of like a geyser at this point. And, um, I do think that also has something to do with some of the tendency breaking stuff is like, um, because offensive tendencies can also be understood. So, okay. ZN says, is it your sense that many fans either don't really get or don't like the Rams plan to use 2023 as a reset year in which they'll develop a team they'll add to with the picks and cap space they'll have in 24. Um, I don't think that people don't get it, or if they don't get it, I think it's not for lack of information being provided. It's maybe like willfully not getting it. Um, I just think that most people don't like it in today's landscape. If people don't like something, um, they'll sort of actively use other things as truths <laughs> if they don't like the actual truth. <laughs> so, um, I just think that that's, and, and I think the majority of fans do get it also. Um, I just think it's hard to watch sometimes and, and that leads to frustration. And I think that frustration also leads to like memes or, or using like the word tank a lot, which I, I don't like that word. As you guys know, I've talked about it before. Like I joked like, so if the league thinks you're tanking, they'll investigate you. And I'm sitting here laughing because I'm like, the Rams can't even get a flag to go their way. How do people think that they're not going to lose hella draft picks if the league thinks that they're tanking? So um, we know how the league feels about this team right now. Um, and for many teams, because my God, officiating across the league is terrible. Anyway, um, like so tanking, like it, me it literally means losing on purpose to reap the rewards of a league that is designed to set up and reward people for failure. Um, so you don't have to, to, to do that. You wouldn't just have to systemically and structurally dismantle your own roster. And you also would need to predetermine bad health breaks, um, somehow. Okay. And like, so just for the sake of argument, so the Rams, a have an halfway or at least two thirds way overhauled roster. Okay. But, and then they also got the worst health break they could have gotten Sunday, which was Matthew Stafford wasn't playing. So even two of those variables being true, they also had to depend on all the other teams who are have either 
their record or worse than their record, ultimately losing more games than them. You don't have control over their ecosystems. You can't control like, uh, I guess this is a good example in recent weeks. If a team fires a head coach and they get the interim coach boost, which is ironically like statistically proven to help uh, win a game, you can't control coaches and players, including your own, um, their own feelings, putting their own families and, and their bodies on the line. Um, you know, tanking means losing on purpose. And for coaches and players, like that is an insult. Um, coaches and players, if you ever ask them even anything related to it's, it's an insult to them because of what they put into this to try to win games. And like the thing that's so troubled in, in this league is that it does reward failure in so many ways. I mean, Again, recent example, it rewards coaches who fail because it recycles them. It does not um, – there are people who are fighting the good fight and trying to improve hiring practices. But we also see coaches who fail get recycled all over the place because they know a guy or they come from a system or because somebody gave put in a good word or um, any, any number of reasons. It's also it, – it's a league that rewards failure uh, to – put together a cohesive and um, functional environment because it says, hey, if you fail worse than every other team, you get the top pick in the draft. And it's because the league wants parity. I understand that. But on so like on paper, that's a logical way to reap resources, especially in a year like this when there's some great quarterbacks in this draft class. But this is not an on paper situation because there are 100 plus humans involved in a million plus little decisions and outcomes every single day. Um, and I was looking at a bunch of models uh, around the league, uh, analytical models, guys, come on, get your head out of the gutter. I was looking at a bunch of analytical models uh, throughout the course of the morning. And like, so ESPN's model, it, pro- it projects the Cardinals, the Panthers, the Giants, the Patriots, and the Bears to be between 3.6 and 5.6 wins, um, respectively. Um, our athletic model has the Rams at 6.6 wins, which puts them outside of the top five. Um, if you watch the games, it's actually hard other than Sunday. Like I'm just going to remove Sunday from the equation. If you watch the games, it's hard to imagine that the Rams would be worse overall, all things equal to worse than those teams. But if you're saying that a team is tanking, you're also betting that they're more like structurally dysfunctional than one of those teams that's going to be in the top five because that would naturally drag down the above average players on your own roster. It would drag down an above average coaching staff um, that would being that structurally intentionally being that structurally dysfunctional um, because you know you would have to drag down players who want to win and coaches who want to win, right? That That's what tanking means. You're betting you're setting yourself up. You're betting you've set your own team up for failure more than those teams are currently naturally failing, right? Like that's that's what it is. Um, so the, the word is, the word to me, like I think that, I think that the, the word is, I just don't like the word, losing on purpose in order to reap league applied benefits. Um, but so what I think the Rams are doing and ZN, I know you did not ask for any of this, but I'm, I'm ranting now and wrote some thoughts down cause I can write better than I can talk. Um, so like, I think what the Rams are doing is trying to win, but it's also true that there's a legitimate chance that they do get a top 10 pick and 
there's also a real chance that they aren't in the running for the top two or maybe even top three consensus quarterbacks in this draft class, considering the needs of the other teams that are currently and probably toward the end of the year worse than this Rams team. Um, so like in that light, it tank is an easy word to use. It's not the right one. I don't think to describe this team right now. Um, but I think that it's interesting because I mean, we've, they've, they've sort of said this the whole time. And like I said, in last week's show, it's like, it's almost like if they're being that overt about what they're doing, which is using this as a setup year for 2024 and 2025 in a variety of different ways, they've been super public about it. And when someone who runs a multi-million dollar organization led by, owned by a billionaire, when they're that public about what they're doing, you automatically don't trust it. Right. So I think that, um, there's a lot of, a lot of frustration over what the short-term product looks like. So I, I get that. And I think it's fair. Um, but I also think that like part of my job is to continue to, um, try to parse through the 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 short term um, mess and, and and understand those issues and then pick out what details need to be fixed for the long term um, things that are you know see patterns things like that that need to be fixed and changed um, and apply it to what very clearly is the model that they're now in which is setting up for 2024 and and 2025 so. Um, that was a really long answer to your question. I don't know if that did answer your question, but uh, did my best there. Um, yeah, and, and I know that that was a really long answer to your question, um, but it also, I think, I hope, uh, covered a lot of the other questions that I've gotten about what this team's plan is, what's going on, uh, how could you think that they're doing anything other than tanking, um, and all, all questions that I'm happy to, to try to answer and, and try to do so as, as openly, um, as I can, like with my perspective again, um, it, this, this is, uh, a place that this team is in is basically you, there's just, you're just going to ride the roller coaster, you know? Um, I just think that that's what it will be. Um, and, and on that, uh, on threads, Mr. Tom Oakley wants to know, can I ask a question about what it's like covering a team that's gone from historically good on offense to historically bad? How does it feel to report on such highs and lows within a relatively short period of time? Um, I mean, it's like, that's the thing is, is from my seat, I just think I'm just lucky for all of it, really, because I get to do this. And I know that sounds lame and, and cheesy and earnest, but um, what you don't want is, is a team that's just stuck in neutral. Um, you want to see what the plan is, what the direction is, because then you get to throw yourself into that work and, and in that coverage. Um, it's so easy to go numb, I think, and, and be complacent as a, as a, a reporter if the same things are just happening over and over and over again and you, um, that's good enough, you know, or that's, um, when things are bad, they're still exciting, I guess I would say. And, when things are good, they're obviously exciting for different reasons. I would say, and this answers someone else's question, is one of the challenges is that you do understand and you're empathetic to the fact that it is harder to talk about failure and it is harder to talk about um, criticism. And so that does make it harder when you go into the locker room and you are asking people to literally talk about failure and about criticism. And you're asking the head coach to talk about failure and about criticism. 
That is, I am empathetic to how difficult that is. And so I think that that is something where, um, there is, there's always, you're always considering that. I would say it's, it's, it's more fun. You get more fun details when, when everyone's (laughs) winning, um, as a reporter, but, um, you also learn a lot about the quality of someone's character. You learn a lot about, um, the dynamics of a locker room. You learn a lot. I mean, look at last year, you learn a lot about the, um, the, the internal mental workings of the person leading the organization, um, when things are bad, losing exposes a lot. Um, and, and that doesn't mean it's always a negative thing that losing exposes winning on the other hand, hides a lot. Um, and I think that this is a team that is coming to a reckoning of sorts. And I don't mean just on the football side, coming to a reckoning of sorts of what all of that winning did so quickly and so fast and so meteorically did in terms of patching up some of the things that would have otherwise been addressed had they not been winning quite so much and had a natural balm over certain things, some substance matters, um, like matters of substance, what I mean to say, um, that that would have been um, probably addressed much earlier um, had there not been so much winning so fast um, as an organization, I mean, I mean, is, is what I'm specifically talking about. So I think that that's, they're coming to terms with some of that now and they're, and they're looking at some of those things now. And, and that's always interesting. Um, that kind of leads me into my next, I wanted to get to this. I told him not to let me forget this. Um, Seattle Rams says, since the Packers found enough offense to pull this game out of the discussion for the worst game you've covered professionally, what are some of the games that come to mind that would still qualify? Well, I covered, don't forget, I covered Penn State football. Um, what what year was it? 15? When that was the first, the year that they lost to Temple for the first time in like 75 years. Um, so, okay. So two two of my worst games I've ever covered actually are, they're the worst for different reasons, but one of them's actually the best. So one of them, um, I don't know if you, some of you have ever been up in that Penn State press box up at the top of the stadium. I think it's since been renovated, but it was there were there were a lot of people that complained about it, but I thought it was so cool because it was so stripped down and um the walls were really thin and like you were basically sitting on top of the fans, like a hundred thousand, a hundred ten thousand um in that stadium. And I would always uh fill up a glass of water and set it on the desk and um, you'd be free, you know, you'd be freezing and, and all that. And, and then the fans would start cheering and the water in the cup would start shaking. It'd be like Jurassic park. So I'd always kind of do the Jurassic park thing. Um, but, but that said, there was one bathroom in that press box and I got locked in it on accident and the lock broke and I was stuck for an entire half <laughs> in the, in the bathroom. But keep in mind, there's only one bathroom <laughs> in that press box. So I'm stuck and nobody else can get in and nobody else can go to the bathroom. So that was a terrible day. Um, so that was like probably not exactly what you were looking for that there, but that was one of the worst games I can remember covering professionally. And then um, my other one in terms of worst on the field, it actually led to one of the most pivotal and defining moments of my career. And I think there's a lesson here and there's sort of a metaphor here for also everything that you're watching unfold right now in that the some of the most awful awful shit you see or that uh, a group goes through or that you personally go through 
can also lead to some of the best things that have ever happened to you in your life. And that's important perspective, I think, as humans to keep. Um, you know, I covered this game where um, it was Penn State playing Army and Army was running the triple option, but I think it was like all three of their quarterbacks. It was either two, the first two or all three were were out. They had been injured. And it was raining and this like late, deep on the depth chart guy, uh, A.J. Schur, I will never forget, this quarterback came in and he's running the triple option. The skies have opened up. It is disgusting. It's like 15 degrees. It's pouring. It's like sleeting. Um, it, it's like everything. It's like it's not even snow. It's just like this wet, cold rain. And he's running the triple option. And he's getting the crap kicked out of them by this this really solid Penn State defense at that time. But the, the Penn State offense is not really scoring. And it's just, it was such an ugly game in terms of the production and the and the setting. And then I'm in my binoculars, because you guys know I've always got my binoculars up in the press box. And I'm looking through, and this quarterback keeps coming to the sideline between drives, and he's over by this trash can. And I can't figure out why he's going there instead of going to talk to the coach. And so I get my binoculars out and I look and it turns out every time the army offense was off the field for a series um, after a series in which this kid inevitably just got the crap kicked out of him running the triple option, um, he'd go to the sideline to a trash can and he would just vomit into this trash can like Oh my God, it was, and then, and it's, and it's like this, this gray all through the air and there's mud everywhere and and he's got blood all over his Jersey and he's vomiting into this trash can. And then he's going right back out onto the field and running the goddamn triple option. (laughs) And, and I sat there and I was the only reporter at my paper, um, on that beat. And I sat there and it was like Penn state football is it's that that is the town is Penn State football is there. I mean, people who know Center County, people who know um, State College, like they know it, that is that is the town. And it would be like and I wrote, wrote for the local paper and it would be like the biggest like faux pas to not go get the Penn State coach and players after that. They, they ultimately gutted it out and they won that game. But instead, I went over and I got the Army coach and I got the quarterback, A.J. Sure, because what I saw was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. This kid who was will- willingly going out onto the field and getting the crap kicked out of him, running the triple option in the mud and the rain and the freezing cold, and then vomiting everything else he had left between series into this bucket on the tr- at this trash can on the sideline. And, and he comes out and he talks to me and I learned that he's about to go directly into the forces as, as the army, the military schools do directly into the forces when he leaves. And so he has willfully chosen that not only was he willfully running the scheme, going back into the game after giving it everything he had, he was also in life. He had decided that's the kind of person he was going to be as well. And so it, it, my editor was not happy that I, at first, that I went there instead of to cover the Penn State players. But I wrote about this kid and this disgusting thing that was happening that all of a sudden 
you realized what it meant. And I wrote this story all about him and all about that game and all about what it meant. And it ended up being the biggest lesson I think I've ever learned. Um, And it was the story that got me a job in the NFL. And now I'm here. So (laughs) I'm a little... uh, even remembering it, I'm a little uh, I'm a little emotional about it because it was um, it was a pretty impactful and significant life lesson, but also a a lesson as a writer that um, even as a writer, as a journalist, don't always do the thing that you think you're supposed to do because it seems like the thing that's easier, or you won't get yelled at, or you won't get a slap on the wrist, or you won't get it's the thing that's just falling in line to do. Go do the hard thing, right? Um, so that was a, a pretty significant lesson. And I think, um, something that I've found valuable in my life at, at various occasions too. Um, okay. Uh, before I let you guys go on the show, I've got I got a lot of these questions last week. I've gotten them a lot this week. Um, Stetson Bennett questions. So I want to, first of all, like direct people to my column from last week, which was, Um, all about the backup quarterback situation. I think there's fair critique in there that's askable of the front office and the coaching staff in regards to their backup quarterback strategy. We've talked about this at the beginning of the show, talked about it in that column, um, as well as on the podcast last week. So it's obviously important to be cost-effective for them. I agree with that. Their draft strategy in general with Stetson um, overall, like that they were going to draft a backup made sense. Um, I say in, you know, like Bennett without any judgment about him as a player or anything like that, or as a person, it, it was a clear miss because this organization is not sure they're, they're hopeful, but not certain that he will be back, um, at all at this point, this is obviously developing a uh, situation that could change, but in that column, you'll see, um, the people I talked to, there was, there was hope, but not certainty that he would be back. He, he most likely would not back, be back this year. Um, and so there was in that column, there's some, I think, fair criticism about what their situation is. And also what I know to be of the, the Bennett situation, um, which I think probably still doesn't quite offer the amount of clarity that, that fans are, are seeking, but it, it, it does, I, I, I did my best to, um, give as much information as I could responsibly present um and, and as much of the the paint the picture around the situation as I could fairly present. Um I did want to follow up about something. So like you guys know I lurk around <laughs> and I try to see um what fans are talking about. It's super, super important to me to be connected to the people who like literally support my job. Um, it's also really important to me to be connected to the fan base and try to answer questions and uh, make you guys feel like you're being heard. Um, Although if you are the guy who called me stupid last week, that still stings a little. That kind of hurt my feelings, just to say. Um, So, okay. So like when I lurk around, I check a lot of social media. I check on Reddit. Hi, by the way, everyone, you guys are super nice. Um, And on the herd message board, uh, which is a lovely group overall as well. And then I saw that there was some debater concern. I used the word sinister last week on the podcast when I said, to my knowledge, there wasn't anything sinister about Stetson Bennett's situation. Um, so I read through and, and all of that. And I think I caused like mo- maybe more speculation or confusion 
Um, I think speculation about it is is uh, is fair, and I wasn't you know trying to, to lecture. You. I was just saying um, you know I probably could have picked a better word, like a less dark sounding word. And and what I only meant to say was from my conversations with people in the building, it sounds like this is a situation where um, Bennett has not harmed anybody or has done anything wrong, has had any issues with coaches. Um, yeah, even though a lot of the external speculation has been about mental health, I did get specific questions about the other stuff. So I was trying to find a way to like answer multiple questions at once. And I think I picked a word that was like kind of threw people off a little bit more. Um, as you guys know, I've said this multiple times, including on this show today where I'm awkwardly trying to hold it down by myself. I write better than I talk. Um, and I wrote about the situation at The Athletic last week. So please go read it. Um, if you have questions and I understand if even then you will have more questions. Um, and I was just trying to say that like of all the, like I see all the memes and people make jokes and there were also questions. I got questions about like legal issues or clashes with, you know, the team or the coaching staff or whoever. And, and I think people were asking this because of the, the Cam Akers situation, um, a, sort of a little bit after that time, around that time. Um, and so I just wanted to, it, my effort in making those comments and, and like kind of trying to talk about that situation on last week's podcast was just to reiterate, like, this is a kid going through a personal situation and to my best current knowledge, he did not hurt anyone or get into a scrape or a conflict or anything like that. Um, he's going through something. The organization has made it really clear that they support him and are empathetic in him working through that, which I think automatically paints sort of a picture of maybe the nature of the situation. So um, I don't really have much to add about that. Um, I think that will be it for me today. This was way too long of an episode. I loved the questions, you guys. Um, I really appreciate you guys for asking such great questions. You always do, but you really, really brought it this time. Um, it gave me good reading material also, by the way. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you guys. And, and I hope, you know, you guys all have a restful bye. Watch the other teams on Sunday. Not Don't just watch the games that are fun to watch. Watch the bad teams too, because you'll kind of get a better sense of like what I'm talking about here um, and in terms of some of the answers to, to some of the, the big picture questions we got. Um, and as you do all of that, like I really hope you guys are taking care of yourselves. I hope you're taking care of each other. Um, I hope you're, as always, staying caffeinated. I hope you're staying hydrated. And we'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.